Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. We're super excited. We have Casper Hultin, who's joining us today. He has a really interesting career. He's been involved with Pecan, with Podio, with Normative, Future 5, and he's going to be sharing a lot of his learnings today. So Casper, thank you so much for joining. We really appreciate it. Hey, Casper, thank you so much for doing this. Lord, thanks. When I was fortunately sat next to you at a dinner in Copenhagen, I, I don't think you realized that the cost of that would be that, that I would convince you to do this. So I, I am very grateful to you. I'll give a bit of background about you. So Casper Hultin is a serial founder, investor, and advisor based in Copenhagen. He founded a company called Podio in 2009, which was acquired by Citrix in 2012 for about $50 million after raising about $4.6 million. That company was a social collaboration company. In 2014, he founded a company called Pecan, which was an employee survey business that we'll talk a lot about. That was acquired by Workday in 2021 for about $700 million after raising only $70 million. Today, Casper is the co-founder of something called Future5, where he's an active entrepreneur and investor in a handful of companies. So we'll talk about that model, but that's a venture builder, basically. And among other things, he's the chairman of Normative IO, which is a Swedish company that's building an emissions accounting platform. So there's a lot to talk about. But the first thing I want to ask you, Casper, is when I looked at your LinkedIn, tried to like learn about your background, it doesn't go back be- before Podio. So... <laughs> Where did you come from? Who, how did you get into this? And what were you doing before you founded Podio? Yeah, good question. So long story short, I'm out of the Copenhagen Business School. So I have a say, commercial background. I'm unfortunately not a developer. And as I was exiting school or graduating from school in 2007, it was a heydays for students to get job at the time. And uh, I, I got a lot of those job offer things. And then a friend of mine, we always spend our time talking about startups and I went around asking everyone what I should do. Should I take the job? Should I do the startup? And you ask people and they basically give you the answer they would they would do themselves. And uh, one night I was sitting in my kitchen and I um, thought to myself, the only person you haven't answered, ask the question is yourself. So I did. And the next morning, me and Gus, we started the first company, which actually ended up being two companies. So we did a, something as sexy as a free printing for students at a, in universities by utilizing the rear side of the page for job advertisements, which was trying to get rid of the mess of a lot of flyers and whatever have you in, in, in schools. And uh, while we're doing that, so that actually kind of went well. We got investment in and we found someone to build the software. And then for those of you that remember a little bit of history, 2008 came around and uh, it was a heck lot easier to sell job advertisements in the spring than in the fall of 2008. And the investor had also put some money into real estate in Dubai or wherever it was. And the software company was owned by some Icelandic people. So uh, I usually say my best decision is to start my first company and the second best is to uh, close that ship. We had a few other uh, businesses at the time and uh, I, I think you need a few unintentional nonprofits under your belt. So I had mine before uh, before Podio, but uh, lots of learning around that. There's the obvious sort of timing learning around that business. One thing was the financial crisis, which I guess we could have foreseen, but most people didn't. The other was the sort of timing around 
building something that was flowing with time. You can say we built like an analog tool in a world where everything was going digital. And uh, we'll come to Podio and Pecan or whatever later. But first lesson in life, it's a lot easier to surf in inwards towards the beach than swimming out. And I think there was a bit too much paddling out for that business. And luckily, we found the waves later on. It sounds like you're not a technologist by training, no. I guess. You're kind of a SaaS operator by accident almost, but an entrepreneur sounds like very intentionally, actually, like you wanted to start stuff, right? It's almost like you wanted to start stuff, but regardless of what it was, you wanted to start something that it sounds yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. where you were coming from. That has been my kick and it still is my kick. And I think for me, it's the people part of it. That's interesting. And I think as you build companies, essentially build groups of people. And, uh, and I think that's very fascinating. I mean, the other the other business we also started when we first started was a children's furniture company. And I was 25, single, whatever. I don't know why the heck I got into children's furniture, but, uh, you know, so actually ended up with another big learning because uh, we, we, we did kind of well and had a pattern that we had the biggest wood manufacturer of that kind of furniture approach us. And we were doing it with a, say, former friend. And the day before we had to go and negotiate to sell the project or the concept to this big manufacturer. Uh, he called us up and said, well, guys, I'm just going to take it myself. We've done all the contracts, but we haven't really signed them and all kinds of stuff. And uh, that was sort of the first time I learned the lesson that the, the business is business and I need to get the shit in order, pardon my friends. And I think some of the later story actually, uh, you know, that, that learning has been very helpful of getting the small things in order. What are your pet peeves, small things that every founder should just make sure they get in order? No, but I think I honestly, I think it's a big thing of both Podio and obviously maybe more particularly Pecan because we went through the Podio journey, but I don't think there was a lot of, I mean, that's, that's, we, we will talk about it later, but of course there's some magic, but one of the things that we did do was all these little things. So a little thing is to get your, I don't know, shareholders agreement done properly before you start. So when you enter the first sort of investment conversation, you have a data room that is clean. You're always selling credibility to some degree. I remember Christian, my co-founder, he was sitting when we were seven, 10 people, whatever, in a co-working space and uh, sending around you know, policies we had to sign for if we lost our laptop at a bar or whatever. And we were all laughing at him. And he said to us, uh, just wait and see. I'll be the one laughing at the end. And sure enough, Two years later, three or whatever it was, GDPR came around and I'll bet you if you search a peak on Slack, channels the 25th of May, uh, 18 or whenever GDPR came out, I don't think you could barely find the word mentioned because we had done it before that. So that's what I mean about the small things. I mean, it's not super sexy to spend the extra dollar up front on your lawyers. It's not super sexy to do policies. It's not super sexy to do hiring policies. It's not. But it's kind of how a company works. And particularly when you scale it, it, it kind of matters for, for the speed. Yeah. No, I, I, th I think that that resonates with us. We have a lot of conversations with founders early stages, you know, where we're sort of encouraging them to use a real law firm or a real accountant. And we're trying to walk that balance between if it's your company, you can do whatever you want. But on the other hand, you probably should do this right, even though it's going to be more expensive mm. because of all the reasons you just said. And that I think we've been through a period of time when that was less popular. And I think yes, we had to yeah. work harder to convince founders to do that. And we didn't want to make ourselves so uncool by insisting on these things. But I think we've always been on that side of the fence. And it's nice that the pendulum swinging back a little bit where these things feel more important. But let's get into sort of the Podio, Pecan, 
future five normative kind of journey here. Let's start with Podio. What exactly was it? When I read about it, a social collaboration acquired by Citrix, which was also a collaboration sort of tool, remote work, like back when remote work meant something very different than it does today. What was Podio? What was the founding insight of Podio? That is actually a very good question. What is Podio? And I think uh, to some degree, the question we never really answered. The, the, the insight was essentially, and I know it sounds crazy, but this was very early day uh, uh, SaaS. Uh, you know, uh, Morton Megan and, and Alex and Sendesk and Jason and David had started Basecamp, and, but there wasn't that many people doing stuff. And essentially, I joined uh, Jon and Anas, Anas who, who was the sort of co-founders. And their take was essentially that, A, there was a movement going toward bringing things in the cloud. You had a movement around collaboration or social in general, sort of becoming a thing in the private sphere. Facebook was on the rise and Google. And uh, the essential thing was to try and say, can we bring some of that social interaction that we know from our private lives into business? The other thing was that the insight was every business basically have unique processes and all the tools that were around at the time, you basically had to fit your process into the tool. So if you bought a Microsoft suite and had SharePoint or whatever you had, you needed to fit your work into SharePoint. And if you wanted to adapt SharePoint, you either had to be a developer, you needed to hire one, and it took a long time. Long before this, there was something called Notice Notes, which tried to do this sort of form building thing, but it didn't really work. Probably primarily because cloud weren't there and it couldn't be served at a real SaaS model. And that was kind of the insight that now it was time again to try and do Lotus Notes, not that we were trying to copy Lotus Notes, but the idea of building something so flexible that somebody that without a development background could essentially build their own app. So we built an app store on the first drag and drop form builder where you could build, say, a lightweight CRM system or a lightweight ATS was system. Like, was it like an Airtable attempt? Was it, what was the idea? Was it like a no-code app builder for collaboration? Yeah, it was a no-code app builder with sort of a collaborate layer on top or below, if you want. And at that time, you had Tana, uh, Jamma came out. And then, of course, Slack came around and basically made it very simple. But it's funny because if you look at it today, I still honestly don't think anyone has really solved it. it there's still all the same troubles today with the notion or with Monday or whatever they're called around how you actually effectively work together and the, the architecture around doing this. So it doesn't break when you work with two organizations and can't find things and stuff like that. So it's a lot of things. And the other, I think, interesting insight there was that every tool that you build is built on a set of values. So Microsoft is built on a set of values that nobody trusts each other. So you need a ton of permission settings where we sort of brought this sort of social sphere into it. And actually one of the highest in demand feature requests we had in the early days was for people to be able to delete or edit other people's, so curating other people's comments. And we were like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, like you, you, you should allow, but people came from a mindset of, of needing to control everything. And we had this design saying that was like, if in doubt, revert to social. Meaning that you need to let let social regulate your permission. Of course, there's lots of permissions and stuff like that. But uh, anyway, it's getting a little bit nerdy. But I think it was a there was a lot of insights and a lot of things fitted. So it actually, uh, but there's still people using Podio today, and nobody had worked on it for ten years, and it doesn't look amazing anymore. But the tool in itself is super super powerful. It sounds pretty forward thinking for the 
date that you started it, right? It sounds I think it was, and I think to some degree it was too forward in the sense that we were basically telling people, if you just jump the fence, the grass is much greener on the other side. The question is how big you make that fence. So there's a couple of steps to a market. First, you have to uh, convince people that that's a problem. Then you have to convince them that you're the right solution. And at Podio, we really have to spend a lot of time convincing people that email wasn't the way forward. Because nowadays it's obvious, right? Like now we're all on Slack and Notion or whatever the tools are. But at that time, everyone was on, on email and we would, in very early days, get customers saying, we will pay you like 100,000 if we can just put it on our own server. So people were calling back, if but the Facebooks and the Googles and bigger sort of back to the surfing analogy, at least there was a wave flowing towards where we were going. And then. So, I mean, well, one of the things we try to do here is unpack the early thinking around a product because a, a lot of the people who listen to this and, and refer to this are at that stage in their company life cycle. With your permission, I want to drill a little bit into Podio because you've said a bunch of, of interesting things. Including you said something really revealing. You said, I'm not sure we know what it is yet, even though you've already exited the business. So I'm wondering if that was something that you guys were feeling while you were building it. So in 2009, 2010, you were starting, you were building software, you were presumably talking to customers, your users were experimenting with building different things. For a tool like that, there's many use cases, right? Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of examples. So... Did you feel that viscerally as founders that you don't really know what you're building or for whom? And that must have been very stressful. And there was a lot of potential, but a lot of stress because you don't know what you're actually building and for whom. It was. And I think because when you're building a tool that essentially can do everything, the danger is to become nothing for a lot of people. Like it's the 80-20 route. Can you build something that's like 80% good enough, but you have to build it. But you have to think about this. Of course, Salesforce was there, but that was sort of for bigger companies. And then at some point, all these verticalized tools started coming. They started building ATS tools. So we had to be better than the ATS. We had to be better than all the other ones. We spent a lot of time about what is Podio. And I think one of the reflections is that this question also is connected to your business model. So Podio grew up in a time where premium models were the thing. I think nowadays it's starting to be called product nets. It's quite funny when you've been around the block a few times, you sort of start, you start seeing the trend, it's just get a new name, but essentially the same thing. But I mean, we could get, I don't know, five, 8,000 new company accounts to sign up per week. There was a lot of traction. We leased a new feature would be in, in TechCrunch nowadays, and we would get, I don't know, thousands of, of signups, but nowadays obviously you can't do that. So I think reflecting back and obviously something we then did at Pecan was had we had a say more enterprise sales team or someone that that was able to sell this deep into someone that actually could put it into being a process tool for a company that was deeply rooted in their processes I think we could have charged like real money for it but charging I don't know ten dollars per user I don't know if it ever matched to be honest but uh so I I know you have very good reasons for not wanting to talk about the Pecan acquisition too much, right? Because it's recent and it's big and it's a public company. I don't want to get into the mechanics of the Podio acquisition, but I am curious if you feel looking back on it, do you wish you had kept going or do you think selling was the right decision when you sold it? Yeah, I've had that question many times and and the answer has actually always been the same, which is quite nice. And I do not regret it. It's impossible to fantasize about what could have been. I still think, honestly, there's an opportunity to build 
another podium again now and actually do it great. But it unlocked a lot of other opportunities for us, even though maybe it's not your dream job every day to sit in a bigger company like Citrix. We learned a lot from being in Citrix. And I don't think we would have ever started Beacon if we hadn't had the insights from being inside a big organization. So, you know, I think this life, and I'm not a sort of a big nostalgic. We worked our ass off until the last day we walked out of the door and I basically never really looked back. Because the other thing is they could have also gone bust half a year later. Right. I think there's a lot of people that wish they've sold in 21 right now. But If we have time, we can come back to that topic because that's something we talk about with founders a lot. Okay, so Pecan. Pecan for me is a, a company of great sort of personal interest because it represents something that I struggle with as an investor. And so I want your help. So Pecan, as far as I understand, it, it was an employee experience, primarily a survey tool, right? It's a tool that's mm-hmm. used as a SaaS offering where companies can present employees with basically surveys, right? To understand stuff about their employees and then create insight from those surveys that employees receive. That's the core of the product, right? And, yeah. and my company clearly in astounding success raised relatively little money, sold for a huge exit to a, to the leader in the category, right? The only thing better than a $700 million exit to the ca- category leader is an IPO. You guys got really far and very quickly too. It was super impressive. I didn't have the chance to look at Pecan as an investor, but if I did, I probably would have passed at the seed stage because <laughs> I would have said, even if the guys are amazing and even if the idea is a really good one, how can you build a barrier to entry here? And mm. isn't it so... Did you guys struggle with that question or am I just completely misunderstanding how to think about this company? Like clearly I am, right? Because I would have made the wrong call. So no, I mean, you're obviously not the only one, but maybe it's interesting in Pika just to take it back to the beginning. I think you sort of understand the the reasoning. I mean, of course it helped that we had done something before. So we had a little bit better grasp of some and we were better at doing the small things as I mentioned earlier. But Pecan started with, Three of us from Podio, uh, uh, Phil, uh, Kristen, and myself, basically we got together and said, we want to work together again. And we, we started formulating, should that be? And the initial idea was that we wanted to build a company we actually wanted to work for. That, that was sort of the main mission. That's obviously a little bit hard to put on the shelf and sell to someone. So we needed to find out what products that company going to be selling. So we made ourselves some. I call them dogmas or, or, you know, some, some, some thesis. So it needed to be global. It needed to have a straightforward business model. We went to a summer house and brought uh, all the ideas in a few beers. And then late night, Dan says, what about HR or people? No, nobody has been doing anything about that. So why don't we do something about that? And the thesis was essentially, if you look at marketing, you have a funnel that is essentially acquisition, growth, retention. So basic marketing, you acquire a customer, you, you re, uh, grow them and you, you retain them. And all throughout that funnel, that has been massively reinvented the last, say, 10 or even 20 years. And the role of the CMO has dramatically changed from sort of the uh, madman, I got an I got an idea kind of type to something that's much more real time, much more experience focused and much more data driven. And Dan's thesis was that in, in the people side of the business, you have exactly the same funnel. We acquire or hire talent, we grow them and we retain them. And everyone had focused on the acquisition part. So you had the levers, greenhouse or whatever they were called, and nobody focused on the growth and retention side. 
And essentially, our thesis was that the HR manager would go through the same transition as the marketing manager. The CHRO would go through the same transition as the CMO, basically going from a little bit more field type of role to a much more data-driven, real-time, experience-focused role. So that was the A3 paper we draw up in the summer house. And then we started executing on this and then did a lot of research around should it be goal setting, should it be engagement. And we quickly found out that engagement was interesting because what we wanted to build was essentially a data play. So when you looked at engagement back in the time, it, it was something that you had to do once a year. It was a relatively manual process. The output was just a PDF for maybe an online PDF, but still it wasn't real time by any means. And there was a few sort of people like a culture or, or even before tiny pulse or whatever they're called, they came out and, and they had this idea of every company is different. So we will adapt the survey to every individual company where we were like, if we have any reason to be, we need to be smarter than the individual company. The only way to be that is to standardize the questions so that we can standardize information and basically build a data layer on top of all this information we've got. So that was a product thesis, if you want. And the other thing we've learned probably a little bit from Podio was to not be too, as I said, don't make that fence too high. So it sounded pretty down to earth when we started, but there was actually deliberate. I remember we were sitting looking at, you know, what if we connect to the G suite and we can read who's meeting with who and can you get all kinds of sort of fancy uh, things on interpreting uh, employee experience in a more sort of mechanical way. And we decided that it was just not where the buyer was. So let's start with the buyer and let's just start building the best engagement tool in the world. Funny enough, two years later, me and Phil, we met a guy at a conference in New York and he had actually gone about building that company. We asked him, can you sell it? And he's like, no, nobody wants to buy it. It's too far ahead of where the buyers are. So sometimes it's okay to be a little bit more plain banana by default. But in the beginning, it was harder to sell the default questions because, you know, hey, we at BMW, we want something a little bit more customized. But nowadays, I think we've collected almost 500 million uh, employee surveys and by far is the biggest sort of database on employee intelligence if you want. So at some point it switched, right, where our deficit became our advantage, but it requires some pretty stubborn product vision in the early days to get there. I have two questions. So the first is like, when did you know that being stubborn and like saying, no, we're sticking to the standardized questions was working? Like when did it go from, you know, every customer wanted, wanted to customize to like, no, what, what you knew was the right path became clear that it was the right path? That was my first question. Yeah, along the way, and I, and I don't, we didn't get that balance right every day, right? I mean, I think at some points we were too stubborn. In the beginning, we told people you have to do this weekly and you go to a big company that do this every year and they like, yeah, no way, thank you. We kind of learned that it was more about taking people on this journey to do this as a continuous thing. There's a pragmatism to it as well. Otherwise, it doesn't really work. But I do think we were quite deliberate on it. And, and again, I think some of the learning from Podio, where you have a tool that can do a little bit of everything, means that your product input also comes from everywhere. I want a better ATS. I want a better CRM. I want better commenting or whatever. And 
I think that taught us to actually be, we always talked about it. You, the last thing you want to do is to build a Christmas tree where you just hang all kinds of shit on all your leaves. So we really tried to to stick to it. And uh, there was definitely some investors and ourselves as well that sort of early days said, you know, you need to build more than engagement. You need to goal setting. You need to do it. And we actually tried and we failed early on on building like the next thing. And then we decided like, let's just build the best engagement tool in the world and then we can always do normal now people can do more than just engagement but i think that's what got us my second question you'd mentioned when you and your co-founders were thinking about starting pecan that really you wanted to build a company where you wanted to work for right and you had that notion before you even thought of the product which is very interesting and i guess obviously it's easier to just be an employee at a company that already exists it's so much easier than being a founder what was missing from other companies where, like, what aspects did you want to be included in this company that you were building where it was so important to build it yourself? I mean, for us, it was a bit of a test ground in the early days. And of course, something sort of straightened out as we became bigger, but it was like super transparent. We had open salary models. We designed the holiday policies ourselves. Like, so we really tested around what it is to run an organization. And some things worked, some things didn't, some things worked for the stage, some things probably still around. And But I think we had this notion of it wasn't just building a product, it was about building a company. And Podio was an amazing culture. Like it was very small team, 20, 30 people, I think 30 people when we sold it. But from, I don't know, 10, 15 different countries, a lot of people moved to Copenhagen. So the one thing we thought going into Pecan is set up the culture part, check, we are very good at that. And then you have to do it again with a new set of people. Everyone got five years older and have kids and you can't solve every problem at a bar anymore and whatever. And that is actually really, really hard. So yeah, there's no magic to building great culture, but I think we at least tried. There's a couple of things that stood out to me in, in your description of Pecan. You know, I'm, I'm trying to sort of unpack, okay, what's the formula? What are the learnings here, both for me as an investor and for entrepreneurs listening to this? One is this was an area, HR and the employee experience and the relationship between a company and its employees was an area that was close to your hearts before you started Pecan. In other words, you guys were passionate about the problem space, sort of naturally, which I think if I look back on companies we've invested in, that's highly correlated with success. The second thing I'm, I'm wondering, and this is more of a question, was your time at Citrix part of realizing this opportunity? And as you went from a tiny startup with a great culture to a big multinational corporate that was already mature by the time they bought you, was that a, it sounds like you might not have been able to start Pecan had you not worked at Citrix. Is that, is that a fair statement? That is totally fair. I doubt we would have done it. And I doubt that we would have been able to build the product. I mean, let, let, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, it's, it wasn't the most sexy thing we walked into. The good thing about that is that you have less 22-year-olds in San Francisco trying to do the same. And one of the reasons is probably you haven't really experienced the problems if you haven't been inside a bigger organization. And as we grew, we started selling to smaller companies because that was where we could get in. And quite quickly, it became more and more enterprise and I mean, today, Beacon is serving the biggest companies on the planet. Part of that sort of growing into enterprise, I think, obviously came from some of the learnings we've had being inside. So yeah. there's another like observation and a question. Observation is when I listen to you describe Pecan, when I ask you, what is Pecan? And you go through this very comprehensive 
explanation of the origin of Pecan and how all the product pieces have to fit together to deliver value, it kind of reminds me of something that's, I think, a truism for founders and for VCs, which is that there may be five or 10 or even 30 companies attacking the same problem, but there's usually only a handful, if any, teams that really have a coherent vision for the whole thing. They can kind of Hmm. see all the pieces. And that when VCs say this, or even founders say it, we all say, everyone in the tech ecosystem says, it's really all about the founder. It's all about the people. You know, it's not about the market or the product definition or any of that stuff. It's at the end of the day, it's about these very intangible aspects of people who are running these businesses. Founders really matter. This is what they're talking about. In other words, you can give someone the pecan playbook. You can give it to a very smart person and they would not have the comprehensive understanding and the intuitive sense of what needs to be built and why Mm. that you just articulated. And I think it's a good reminder of like what vision actually looks like. It's not one sentence. It's the whole thing of all the different pieces and how it all fits together. And my Mm. question to you is, did you have all that on day zero? Because like, I'm just going to say this. If you had all that on day zero, I would like to believe that maybe I would have invested. Not because I understood HR, But because whenever a founder comes with such a comprehensive, coherent understanding of a category and what needs to be done to solve it and an understanding of the pressure points, it's very compelling. So how much of that existed on day zero and how did that evolve towards completeness? Of course, it's it's slightly easier to tell it in a straight line in hindsight than it was when you were in it. But it was very much like that. It was very sort of deliberate. I think the other magic here was we were four people that at least three of us had worked together very well and we knew Dan very well, so pretty tight ship. And and also, essentially, we had a whole marketing team. Day one, Bill was product and CEO and I was commercial. Christian was CTO, Dan was CMO. So there was a lot of, I don't want to say cheating, but of course, we got relatively far, relatively quickly. And, and part of that was the product vision. We basically then... The next step was we did our research and then we started selling. So it was like a very simple, we had a, what I call type form and a simple R regression stuff in the middle and a PDF as the output. And we just wanted to test that was the output good enough for people. So, so, so I remember I pitched one of my good friends who's now running public.com uh, at a, at a bar here in Copenhagen. I showed him, here's my new company. And I showed him like literally a PDF and he's good on you. But all we wanted was to test the thesis. So when we started building the real sort of product, we knew what it was. And that year we bought like a big board and we draw like peaks on it. And our thesis was that if we can get 20 companies by the end of the year that can't live without Pecan, that's our goal. So it was really just product. And we actually had Guillaume uh, from, from ID Invest, now Emblem invested in us and we basically haven't sold anything, but all of this was relatively clear. And then we started selling and it actually, I mean, of course it didn't all work. And I think the other part was that we were, we were never in doubt of where we wanted to go. I mean, it was like, we wanted to win the global market. That was kind of it, right? Like it it wasn't, yeah, we do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It was very straightforward. So I think we hired Neil, who was our PRO and absolutely big part of the success there. As I think number 16 or something like that, like a relatively expensive CRO for the amount of money and all the stuff we had. And it just made all the difference. We hired Simone who came from King running finance and came in as the CFO. So again, just putting those right people to the puzzle. And again, with the scope of, we always 
talked about looking at short term and long term, the middle term we don't really care about. Spend time on your vision and spend time on executing what's short term, the sort of six to 12 months or whatever 12 months focus is, is hard because everything changes and stuff like that. But your vision, you need to have straight. So, so I do think it was relatively deliberate, but of course it's, it sounds easier eight years later. Yeah. There's more I could ask about that, but I, I want to also ask you about capital efficiency because, you know, noticing that both Podio and Peacock, one acquired for 50 million, one acquired for about 700 million, were both acquired for almost exactly 10 times the amount of money that was raised by those companies. That's quite striking. It's very capital efficient. Was that intentional? Was it good fortune? And how do you feel about the way founders are running businesses today where they're raising sometimes series A rounds or series B rounds that are bigger than all the money Pecan ever raised? How do you think about that? Yeah, if you look at Podio, I mean, we genuinely tried to build a platform play with a genuine sort of business model that could stand by itself. And we never really built it to sell it, or at least not sell it when we sold it. But I do ironically think that because we built it like that, it was valuable relatively early on for someone else. So obviously for Podio, it was a relatively early exit. And it sounds like what you're saying between the lines on Podio is that the product didn't quite achieve product market fit in a meaningful way, but the platform was architected in such a way that there was real value in the in the software you guys had put together. I think there was product market fit, but I, as I said before, like I think that maybe if I had to do it again, we would reconsider the business model, but we're just 10 years older and a little bit wiser, hopefully. But if more to say that, I, and, and then it, and it, then it happened to fit into, to, to the industry, right? Citrix one, they had a, at that time, the biggest, uh, synchronous business, uh, SaaS business in the world with go-to products. And they wanted to add on sort of the, um, asynchronous part to that. And, and that, that was sort of the. The, the idea about the acquisition and for all kinds of reasons that didn't really happen, but I don't think there was either Citrix or Podio as a products at fault. Uh, so in capital efficiency, the other secret is Denmark. There's amazing developers. They actually stick around for quite a while. You don't pay them London, San Francisco, New York salaries. And I think in general, we've been thinking it relatively cash efficient. We always with Pecan had an idea that every round should take us to a point where we could look into break even. Not necessarily that it was break-even. SaaS businesses are really capital-intensive to scale in the early days because of your ramp time on, on sales reps and, and you know the subscription model that sort of adds up over time. But for a lot of them, if you stop hiring, if you actually have revenue, you, you, you can look into it. So for us, it was more like a control thing that we actually gave ourselves the opportunity. We end up raising more or less every year in February randomly in, in Pecan. But it was often because we could see that it worked and it made sense to keep pushing the accelerator instead of taking the foot off the pedal. So it was a little bit less this sort of, let's just get a hundred million and go crazy. So it was always sort of like next step, next step, next step, next step. I don't know if you look at the cap table, what is the best, but you know, from, um, to your point, a general capital efficiency of the business by raising I don't know, well, 60, 70 million and selling for 700. That's obviously pretty decent, right? It's amazing. And it, it sounds very intentional. It sounds like it was intentional. I and mean, maybe not for the goal of being capital efficiency for the sake of being capital efficient, but it sounds like you were intentionally targeting 
you know, the ability to land the plane, it sounds like it mostly came from a control instinct. You guys didn't want to be at the mercy of investors. Is that kind of what the yeah. motivation was? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, now we ended up selling in 21, but I think for two years prior to that, we were looking out of the window saying this can continue. So, you know, it's good to not, not have a ship that will sink as soon as the, the, the water sort of uh, get a little right. bit. Uh, I think there are a lot of founders who would have wished they listened to this podcast a few years ago. Let's maybe to just talk a bit about future five. I mean, obviously you've learned a lot as an operator, as an entrepreneur. You've been consistent successfully, going all the way back to children's furniture, but certainly in, in other things. What exactly is Future 5? What's the motivation? We talked about it a bit over dinner once, but my reflection on it is that you're innovating a little bit on the venture model, on the angel model, and the venture builder model. It feels like you're building the vehicle you wish you had as a founder. And I'd love to sort of understand what that looks like and maybe what we as VCs in general should be doing better. Yeah, first things first, but like what, what I wanted to do was, I mean, and, and again, I don't know how deliberate this was early days, but essentially I was maybe having a little bit too much muscle memory to go straight back to a garage and I didn't feel like only investing because I like building. So this sort of became the, I don't want to call it compromise, but the sort of model that worked for me. Where essentially we do, we focus on climate, food, and education, because I think those are three areas that matter. It matters to me. It's me and my brother. We are fourth generation of our family business. And we want to do something for the fifth, both ours and sort of the next generation in general. So that's the high level. And then the intent was instead of we do two things. So we do some passive investments, so usual angel tickets and some LP and, and some other fund in, in these areas to basically learn about what sort of the next things coming up. And maybe some of them is a little bit more short-sighted and some of them pretty, pretty long-sighted investments to just understand the environment and support. And then on the other side, we do a handful of companies where we really engage our time and typically, I don't know, spend say a day a week. And it's been two, two main areas of so one, we sort of helped people we've known start companies from scratch. So we've done that in two occasions now. We're essentially going in as a co-founder of more being the active chairman, uh, but helping putting the first check and put some of all the little pieces in place, which is really fun. And typically where most funds sort of doesn't really play. The other thing is that we've been working with companies that already been going, one, one of them being normative, where you had a great founder and Christian, a good product and a market that was coming. And where, of course, we could add some network and a bit of this experience to it. So it's, I typically say we, we work on I guess you have the operating, the leadership and the board level in the company and most funds only work on board level and we go one, one step deeper in these sort of active projects and history will tell whether it's a good or bad idea, but we, we intend to be the most valuable investor in the few companies we do, but for the same reason, we can't do 20 or 30 or whatever we, we do. How many have you done? I mean, for the passive ones, I don't know how many we have, 10, 15, and then, uh, I have three, four projects that, are, that I spent my time on now. And so Normative is one that you spend a lot of your time on. For those who aren't familiar with Normative, can you talk a little bit about what it is and what it does? 
Yeah, so Novensiv is a carbon accounting company. Basically means we help companies get insights into their full scope tree emissions with higher accuracy than most so that you can build your sort of path to net zero on a proper sort of insight. I think one of the things here also maybe worth mentioning is it's, it's, I, I typically talk about this thing about getting to orbit. Uh, and I, I think back to your point about why you would invest or not invest in Pecan. So if you look at it, there's, there's, there's typically these sort of windows of opportunity. It was there with Podio because it's been a while since somebody was doing something around that. It was there with Pecan because HR had been left alone for a while. And then you create this vacuum where a lot of people looking at it. So there were, I don't know, 30 Pecans when we started. We were the Danish, there was the Swedish, there was two in the UK, three in France, five in the US and so forth. And the very simple way of me looking at it is that you really want to get to I call it orbit, meaning that there's ever only really like a handful, to your point, Jill, that sort of becomes the global competitors in the space for the simple reasons that nobody invests big money number six, seven, and eight. So it's to some degree a bit of a funding game. And in order to do that, if you keep that sort of rocket analogy, you need a lot of fuel. So while we might have been capital efficient on the fundraising, we still have sort of hired very skilled people we've sort of been full speed and you need some focus in the beginning once you get there because when you get up there it's all greenfield you're basically competing against the last generation and when you get up there you start competing against your own generation so you don't get into a customer relationship that's greenfield anymore you then start competing you know for pecan's sake with with Lind or Culture Amber or Qualtrics or whatever they were called and now Normative, it's new ones. And I think that was probably what I brought to Normative of this, like, we, we got to get going. I came in two and a half years ago, we were 10, 15 people. Now we're 100 and I don't know, 70, raised 45 million. And it's definitely part of the sort of top, whatever, three to five carbon accounting companies in the, in, in the world, in a market where there is a lot of, and I think everyone's doing well and blah, 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 so it's not to sort of speak backly about some things, but to your point, Jill, I think you're looking for the ones that get to orbit and then it all changes once, once you get there. But And do you plan on continuing? Cause you talk about how with future five, with these select companies, you're getting really involved, right? Like three, four companies. Normative, it seems like they're pretty far along. Do you plan on being that high level of engagement the whole ride or are you focusing more exclusively on that early stage? I'm always happy to find people that are much better than me of doing what I do. That is the goal in life in general. <laughs> and I think some founders occasionally put themselves as the bar and, and it doesn't help. So I've been very lucky to find some amazing people to, to join Normative. Uh, Mac is the CRO. Neil, who was a CRO at Pecan, has now joined Normative. My dear friend and co-founder Christian from Pecan has now joined the CTO. So they're all much better than me. And obviously my role then changes. So the less I do, the better it's going. <laughs> Love it. So we have one more question that we wanted to ask. And you mentioned when we were preparing for this session that you place people before momentum, right? So why do you believe that focusing on people should come before momentum and potential? And how did you put this philosophy into practice at the various companies that you've been involved in? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I just like to put sort of little models in my head to put pieces. So, so I, I, I 
I have this completely unscientific model, I call it people, momentum, potential. And essentially, I think looking at the people should always be your short-term priority. Typically, what's trouble, so systemic trouble in the business is people. Once you get that right and you invest a lot in that, then it's all about building momentum. And that's your mid-term goal, so to speak. And then you have the long-term goal of creating the sort of potential for yourself, which could be anything from fundraising to your big product strategy, your partnerships and all of that stuff. But sometimes you end up getting them a little bit in the wrong order. Like I know a lot of founders that have this, I call it sort of a lobby phobia, where you have a person standing in a lobby, there's five open doors. And some founders, that's their sort of ideal state of mind because they're very afraid of closing a door because that means closing an opportunity. Where for most people in their team, they just want you to close four doors so they know exactly where to go. When I look at a business, I always go in people first, then creating the momentum. I said, Pecan, we hit, I think, whatever, uh, Neil hit sort of nine out of 10 quarters on target and we grew very fast. But this idea about hitting your target and being on target, like a football team going on the field, knowing they're going to win. So I think this sort of momentum and thing is it's important, but it's, it's a tough sort of weird, untangible thing to do, but you cannot do it if you don't have the right people in place. And the long-term potential doesn't really matter until you have the first two things in order. Love and it. I think many, many boards, to your point, Jill, about what can VCs do better. I spent a lot of boards discussing midterm potential, like how are we doing for the quarter and how are we doing? And I don't understand. We don't spend more time on the people, which is what really drives, and then the longer-term potential. So I think the business needs to be good at driving momentum, whereas the investors need to be really good at putting people and potential in place in there. We did get one question from Tanya. She's the CEO of a company called Journey. They're, they work in the exp employee experience space. And she was wondering, why do you think Pecan won apart from the execution? Or was it mostly the execution that was a key difference? Was it the product vision that was different? Was it the use case, first value chosen, uh, more on short term to tackle to enter the market? So really what she's asking is, why do you think Pecan won? I mean, to a large degree, it was an execution game, right? As I said before, there was 40 of us trying, and I think the product was very important and all due to, to Phil, Dan, Christian, and the rest of the team, they've done amazing. And again, to the small things, right? Like I cannot recall like a leadership meeting where we talked about box because that just got handled. Or So there was this obsession around sort of the customer and making it always work. And then Neil and the whole commercial team and Simone and the CFO were just obsessed about hitting targets. We have time for like one little analogy. We were, we were early days taking the whole team to a summer house for these offsites to do the goal setting for the next period of time. And Neil had started, we were started growing and we literally grew out of being able to be in the summer house for the next offsite. And we were sitting down thinking, what do we do? So we came up with this, uh, at the time, stupid idea that what if we tell people, if we hit target for Q1, everybody gets a pizza. If we do a 10% more, we get a party. If we do 30% more, we all go to Barcelona. And then we took, I don't know, one third of the excess revenue and put it back into the employees. And funny enough, we ended up in Barcelona. But what more important, it, it did the reason, the only way we could get there was that we started selling more enterprise deals. And in order to do so, the product team needed to deliver enterprise stuff that sometimes is a bit boring to do. And the sales team needed to get their processes in order. And I think that sort of pizza trick magically made product 
and sales aligned their incentives. And I think if there's one thing that really drives execution is that those two things work together. So we, we sort of did management by mistake, but it worked. Castro, thank you so much. That was awesome. We have a hard stop, so we have to wrap here, but that was fantastic. I really appreciate it. I hope it's not the last time. I hope we find a way to co-invest or work on something together. It's inspirational to be able to hear that level of clarity on your thought processes. And I think it's just fantastic. So thank you so much. No, thank you. Thanks for the question and the time.